1: Welcome to this episode of the Howa Business. This is Henry Lopez and my guest today is David Barnett. David, welcome to the
0: show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Harry. It's great to be here. Well,
1: we're glad to have you. Uh, David is an entrepreneur, a small business author, a consultant, a former real estate investor, and mentor. And uh, He's an expert in the areas of buying, selling, financing, and planning for small business growth. We're going to be focusing on various of those topics in this episode. After a successful sales career, which we'll get into a little bit, uh, he started his first business in 2005 and then sold that business in 2006. He was also previously a business broker, so we'll chat about that. Uh, His latest book is entitled How to Sell Your Own Business, and it became a bestseller under Amazon's entrepreneurship category in its first month of release. Uh, You can find all about his current business ventures at davidcbarnett.com and also investlocalbook.com. And we'll have both of those links at the show notes page at thehowabusiness.com. So in this episode, we're going to chat about David's entrepreneurial journey, his path to becoming his own boss, and he's going to share with us some insights and tips on Buying, financing, and selling a small business. He lives in New Brunswick, Canada, and so once again, David Barnett, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks so much, uh, Henry, for having me on and and uh, giving that snippet about my background. Uh, you know, my my whole life basically has been me either being in business or working closely with with business owners and, in particular, small business people, and so it's it's really helped to shape who I am today and, and and really has focused my area of knowledge and expertise on these on smaller businesses, which I know um, a lot of your listeners are, are probably involved in or aspire to to own one day.
1: Yeah well, that's right. And and like you, like a lot of entrepreneurs, a very varied background, you've done a lot of different things as as opportunities have presented themselves. So I'm anxious to to chat about that. So let's let's start at the beginning where I typically start, which is your education, in your case, uh, business administration, management and operations, e-commerce management. Back when you were in university, what uh, what was your aspiration back then as to what you would do for a living?
0: Well, believe it or not, my, my aspiration was to always be in business for myself. And I was under the, the, the misguided notion that going to business school was going to teach you how to be a business person. <laughs> um, and I, I hear your chuckle because what business school actually does is teach you how to be a middle manager in a fortune 500 company it's it's all about becoming a cog in a in a giant wheel and i remember in my last year of university we were doing case studies and and you know trying to pretend what we would do you know talking about something like a general electric international expansion and I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, I am never going to be the person that has to do this kind of work."
1: <laughs> so, do you think, in your observation, now that that's changed? You know, universities now have much more entrepreneurial programs. My daughter is a freshman now at Indiana University. Do you do you think it's changed that focus? If you are on an entrepreneurial track, that universities have a different focus now.
0: Well, I think that they give um, more attention to it. I think that ultimately, though. Um, the place that you're going to learn about small business and entrepreneurship is by doing rather than studying. I, I like to say to people that it took me a good 10 years after I graduated from university to unlearn a lot of the stuff that was in my head and 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 really get an appreciation for how smaller businesses are actually run. Now, not to say that I wasted my time there because a lot of the the things I learned in my formal education – uh, I'm able to apply to the world of small business, and and it's there are things that small business people uh, are not generally attuned to. You know, uh, you've probably read E Myth by Michael Gerber, and you realize that a lot of small business earn, owners are the the technician type. The auto mechanic is an auto mechanic decides to open his own shop, or the you know the contractor carpenter decides to be open a, a contracting business, etc. So I'm able to bring a lot of things, particularly from finance. Um, that is, uh, you know, everyday regular stuff for people on wall street, uh, that rarely gets applied on main street and often able to help people make decisions and see things that, that they just didn't have the tools to see or understand before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. What's one or two things that stood out to you that you didn't get from that education that you had to learn the hard way by trial and error, owning a business.
0: Uh, in my own business or from what I see every day?
1: Yeah. Uh, e- either way, either way.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the the one thing that doesn't really ever get looked at very closely in, in a formal business school education is cash management. And I learned very quickly in my own businesses and through helping others that cash management is one of the biggest things that entrepreneurs have to deal with. Uh, making sure that inflows and outflows of cash are, are matched because people end up offside. And I'll tell you, the moment that I knew that I needed to spend more time focusing on this was one day when I realized that I was going to have to take a cash advance on a personal credit card in order to pay my assistant in my office because there were payments coming in from clients which were late and they were late because I wasn't on top of them. Um, but of course she worked every day and she expected a paycheck every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if I didn't meet the payroll on the day she expected, I couldn't expect her to be around much longer. Could I?
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, I, I find that the other thing that goes without being taught in school at any level is personal finance, personal finance Mm -hmm. management. And I think the two are so interrelated. I've observed that people who don't have their personal finances order or don't even know how. That of course then they don't have the skill, especially in a small business where you wear all of the hats. You don't have a CFO or an accounting manager necessarily, at least when you get started. And so you bring over that lack of knowledge of finance, and that's I think where it magnifies itself is in cash flow management.
0: Yeah, and, and and I know that from the people that I've worked with over the years, some of the some of the danger signs that I see are, are people who don't make a clear division between their business um, activity and their household. So just to give you an idea today, um, you know, we're recording this on a Friday morning and today is my payday where I make a transfer from my business into my personal bank account. And that transfer into my personal bank account has to run my household and I have to maintain my budget at home just like any other person that has a job. And it's separate from, you know, all the things that are going on in my business. And I've learned over the years that the people that are the most successful in accumulating and building wealth with a business are the people that can keep those two things separated. And then secondly, people who manage to extract cash from their business. And this is is one of the, you know, we talked about, you know, what we're going to talk about today and, and potential mistakes that people make. One of the things that I see people do that is a mistake, Henry, is they, they build this business and they keep plowing profits back into this business with this notion that they're building something that is going to be sold one day. And the problem with that is that small business is risky. Um, I've seen restaurants go out of business because a city decided to spend three months replacing a sewer pipe. You know, all of a sudden access was limited, there was dust, there was dirt, there was heavy equipment in front of the restaurant, the regular patrons didn't go and a business that had been successful for a decade gone, right? No fault of the owners, not because of a staff problem, kitchen problem, something completely outside of their control has killed the business. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, actually a a famous central banker from the 1950s. You worked at the U S federal reserve. His name was John Exeter. And he created something called Ekster's Pyramid of Liquidity, and it, it talks about how people try to move money in a time of crisis. And he ranked the assets that are available to investors in order. And at the bottom, he put cash and treasury bills and, and gold and, and things like that. And up at the very top, the, so then the riskiest position, this is an upside down pyramid, are things like small business. And so when I teach my, my, I have a a program, a seminar program called Business Buyer Advantage. When I teach that class, I say to people, this small business, the purpose of it is to provide for you and you need to find ways to get money out of it to get into less risky asset classes, to preserve wealth for the day when something out of your control happens that kills your business. So the business owner that, Takes money out of his business to go and buy a you know a small apartment block and a piece of vacation property and you know invest in the stock market or mutual funds or what have you and they start to diversify that wealth. They're the ones that have the more solid footing when things go south.
1: Mm. Yeah, very interesting uh, approach and obviously not foreign to me. But the way you've articulated it is very very interesting and compelling and I think it's somewhat contrarian in that we do have this tendency or even teaching or learnings that we got to reinvest, we have to build the business, we got to grow, we got to keep putting that money back in. But in fact, what you're saying, I think, if I understood correctly, is you got to strike a better balance there of getting some of that, some of those rewards out of the business and diversify your investment in your portfolio. Did I get that right?
0: Yeah. I I think that the reason these notions circulate is because of the people we spend our time talking to. So, Mm -hmm. you know, your, your banker is going to tell you to, to accumulate profits in your business because what that does is it grows the equity section of the balance sheet, reduces your debt to equity ratio. Right. And, and the reason he thinks that's a good idea, Henry, is because Having more equity in the business reduces the riskiness of his loans to you. Exactly.
1: He's only worried about how, <laughs> how your ability to repay the loan and making right. sure that's there. You know, twofold, threefold. That's that's all that he's worried about.
0: Well, exactly. And and it's funny because I was speaking with a business owner actually the other day, um, who's on the West Coast, and he was saying that he was preparing his business for sale by paying off all of his equipment and I and I challenged him on that. I said, "So you're taking cash and you're paying off loans you don't have to pay off. You're paying things off early and you believe that this is going to make it easier or or make your business more valuable?" And and he did. And it was it was because he was bringing his homeowner mentality into his business, yeah. right? And and I said to him, "You know, the hardest thing a buyer is going to have to do is find financing to buy your business." And I said, if all of your equipment was leased and a buyer could come in and simply assume those payments, half the financing challenge in buying your business would be dealt with. I said, you, you could be taking all that cash out of your business and diversifying yourself. Personally, it wouldn't affect the value of your business. In fact, it would make people make it easier for people to buy, but people rarely get advice on how to set up and prepare their business for sale. People in, in my experience, Henry, what happens is people work hard for a long time and then some personal event will happen, uh, illness, divorce, you know, the need to relocate or, or something like that. And they'll decide to sell their business and they, and that will be the moment that they then go looking for advice and guidance on selling their business. And, you know, for a lot of people, the lack of preparation will end up costing them money. Um, And so that's why, you know, I do the things that I do, you know, half the people that I work with, um, they're, I'm fortunate that I'm able to get their attention before it's the moment they want to sell. And I'm able to give them some advice on what they can do to get things ready to make it easier for that buyer to buy. Um, I always, I always look at it like, um, like inventory, you know, the cafe owner, they understand that they have to have tasty, Beverages and tasty food and a great recipe for for soup because if if people aren't happy with the product, they're not going to come back and Very few business owners actually think about their own business like a product but when you move from operating a business to selling a business the business itself becomes your inventory and It requires a mind shift in how can I make this? item as attractive as possible And then if you think of someone like a car dealer, it's not only making the car desirable, but removing the barriers to ownership, right? So the car dealer not only has a great car on the lot to sell, but they've also got the financing packages and the warranty arrangements and all these things already set up. So when the buyer comes in and says, I want the car, but I don't have the money, they, they can overcome that objection.
1: Right. And, then that's, and that is the big issue, right? It's easy to get somebody to fall in love with the product, your business, the car, mm-hmm. in That example. It's, uh, it's facilitating and removing the friction, which is the wherewithal, the financing. That's, that's what you have to make sure is in line to make your business saleable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great insights. And we're going to dive in a little deeper on that, but I want to go back um, to your journey after college. Then you had a successful career in sales working for the yellow pages,
0: right? Mm -hmm. And and And, you know, the yellow pages was awesome because I spent my days meeting with small business owners and managers. Right. Right. And, and my conversations always started with the, with the same question, which is when the phone rings, who would you like to have on the other end of the line? And so I got to see from their point of view what kind of person they were trying to attract. And and I did that for years. I was in that for about seven years. And then I, I left when the business was going through some significant changes. It it wasn't a fun place to work anymore. There was an ownership change and their their philosophy changed. And, and I just knew it wasn't for me. So, so I actually went out and I looked at franchise opportunities because I, I believed at the time that a franchise would be a more sure path to success. And there's a, a well-known junk removal business out there and they were, they were going at the time and I, I talked with them and they thought that my market was too small, that the, the city that I live in was too small for their concept. And I just happened to be reading the E-Myth by Michael Gerber at the same time and I realized that I could simply copy what they were doing and write my own operations manual and create my own forms and tools and give the appearance of being a professional franchise without, without actually investing in the franchise system. And, and the, the franchise investment was going to be a $150,000 investment and they were going to take 10% of my sales. And when I created my own business plan, I realized that I could get into business by buying you know a $10,000 used truck and putting some hours in on my own to, to, to create the systems and everything and we we got off to a great start and customers were calling us and we figured out how to advertise effectively and I ran that business for about a year and a half and I had a partner and my partner began to lose interest. He wanted to do something else and I knew that long term it wasn't going to be something for me. So. So we started looking for someone to buy the business. and and in fact, it was purchased by a garbage company that that uh, delivers and picks up dumpsters, you know for bigger commercial businesses. And they were interested not so much in my junk removal business because it was it was sort of small potatoes to them. They were interested in the systems. interesting. when when I showed them how uh, we had this job sheet form that actually controlled the whole job and collected the data that could then be input into a spreadsheet that would show us the revenue per minute on site and, and the overheads of the driving and the gas consumption and everything. The, the KPI systems we created, key, uh, key performance indicators allowed me to train a new employee in two weeks instead of eight weeks, because at the end of every day, we were able to say, do you remember when you stopped and you picked up the junk in that lady's backyard? Well, you estimated that it was this much. In reality, it was this much. And because of that error, instead of making $70 on that job, we made 10, right? And, and because the, the, the visual of that backyard pile of junk was so fresh in the person's mind, they were able to learn more quickly. And, and in that business, the biggest challenge was visualizing volume. It's, it's difficult for humans, for most of us, to see a bunch of stuff littered about a property and then estimate how many cubic yards it will be when it's all piled together. And and that was the challenge we had with our drivers was getting them up that curve because the worst thing that could happen is if they thought it was less than a truckload. In fact, it was over a truckload because now we're we're into another trip. And our value prop in that business was that we gave firm upfront quotes so that people would never be surprised.
1: So let me dive into that for a moment on this concept of franchising. And of course, uh, having been a franchise owner myself, One of the key benefits, if not the key benefit, is that system that you buy Mm -hmm. from someone else. Uh, What advice do you typically give to first-time business owners now about considering a franchise versus building their own?
0: Well, well, there's there's a lot of advice. Um, um, In other words, should (laughs) they
1: do you do you recommend often to people that they because what most people do not have. Is that ability, that skill set, that experience to build their own systems? That's just not, in my experience, that's not realistic for most people, especially if they've had no background and no experience in business. Is that been well, your experience?
0: It, it is, and 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 there's a big black hole here. Uh, actually, my my 2015 uh, book, Franchise Warnings, which was also a bestseller, is entirely on this topic, Henry. So. Uh, let me tell you a story. Um, mailboxes, et cetera. Do you remember them? Yes. Okay. So mailboxes, et cetera, appeared on the scene. And I happened to know a gentleman who who saw one of these stores and thought it was a great concept and secured a master territory right <clears throat> over several provinces in Canada. And he then went out and tried to find franchisees. And because he thought it was such a good business and he didn't have a lot of business experience, he went around to people that he knew were successful business people and tried to sell them franchises. And one by one, they looked at the opportunity and turned him down, said, thank you very much for thinking of me. I don't think this is right for me. And he began to become frustrated. And so he went back to the head office people and he said, I'm having a hard time selling these franchises. And they said, well, well, who are you talking to? And when he started to explain who he was talking to, they said, "Well, well, that's your problem. Those successful business people aren't the people that buy franchises. The people who buy franchises are your retiring civil servants, retiring military officers, um, people who've been let go that have a big retirement pension fund that they can draw from, people who have been let go from their career and they have a lot of home equity. Do you see where I'm going with this?
1: Because they've got the, where we plunk down the 150000 upfront cost.
0: Because they've got the money and they don't have the experience, business experience. Right. Right. And I often, you know, make the statement that franchisors are building a business using the, the funds and equity of the franchisees.
1: Yeah, and it, but, right? it, but that's no secret, right? I mean, that's if you flip it and you advise someone on taking their concept and franchising it, that's one of the reasons you consider becoming a franchisor,
0: right? Well, you said it's no secret, but I think it's actually a secret hidden in plain sight because most franchisees believe that they're buying a business. And what they don't understand is that they're actually renting somebody else's business. So so let me give you an example. Um, most franchise agreements have uh, an expiry date. There may be the 10, 15, or 20 years long, or maybe only five. And at the end of that renewal period, the franchisor can come along and say, for example, that they want you to update the look of the store. They want you to make a new investment, for example. Um, I know of a restaurant franchisee here in my hometown put over a quarter million dollars into building a new restaurant. He didn't make it. Nine months later, he closed the doors. By closing the doors, he broke the franchise agreement. The franchisor came in, paid a month of back rent that he owed. They took over the location and sold it to a new franchisee, right? So, so whose business was it? Was it the first guy's business? Or did he make the investment and take on all the risk to create a wealth generating asset for the franchisor.
1: So it seems to me, David, that one of your big issues with the franchise model relates back to what we were chatting about earlier, which is putting all of this investment into a business that's now tied up and that someone else could end up leveraging, like in the example you just gave, Mm. as opposed to more a bootstrapping approach perhaps, or, or growing organically. And making sure you take that money out of the business. Is that is that part of why you have uh, an issue with franchising?
0: Well, you know, I only have an issue with some franchises because I myself am a former franchisee. Right. So when I, you know, after I sold the, the junk removal business, I became a broker of commercial debt. And I, I went to a company in California who had an intensive two-day training session where I was taught how to put together loan packages and leasing packages and factoring facilities. And so I started to help small business people get money. Um, and that w- it went very well. And I did that for a couple of years until the financial crisis in 08, 09, when a lot of the companies that were sources of financing for me ended up going under. Uh, because they were trying to, they would make loans and then bundle them into into paper and then sell that paper on Wall Street, for example. And when the, when the crisis hit, the appetite for those assets disappeared and so all of a sudden I had no sources of capital to to be able to give to people but what I noticed is that a lot of people were coming to me looking for money to buy businesses that already existed and I I I, I was pretty innovative in my in my brokerage business in my finance brokerage business because my biggest source of referral were actually bankers from Main Street and what what I would say to these bankers I would say look you have these people coming in to see you and the reason they're coming to see you is because you have their home mortgage, their car loan, their investment accounts, et cetera. And now they want to buy a business or start a business. They're coming to you cause you're their banker. If you tell them no and they go across the street to the other bank and that bank says yes, then that bank is going to take the home mortgage, the car loans, the investment accounts, the credit cards, it's all going to walk across the street. Right. So if you say no, why don't you then refer them to me because I'm going to represent a leasing company or some kind of factoring company and they're not in the home mortgage and the car loan business. And it's a way for you to help your customer and keep that other business that the bank has today. So, so I had a lot of really great friends on in main street banks that were sending me people. And I remember one day, um, I got a call from a main street banker and she said, uh, David, she said, I have this lovely couple in my office. They've, they've just moved here from Korea. They're trying to buy a convenience store and they've got this home buying contract written up by a realtor to buy a store saying that they're going to get 95% financing from me. And as I started to look into it, I realized that there was a huge gap In professionals helping people buy and sell businesses where I live and I realized it was an opportunity for me and when I started looking at where I could get into the field I came across one of the big names in business brokerage which is Sunbelt Business Brokers and what attracted me to them was the fact that they actually had the infrastructure to do the training to teach me how to do it and that eventually brought me into uh, getting my certification Um, in, in being a business broker. Now, that franchise though, so so they delivered huge value to me. They helped me develop myself personally. A lot of what I do every day today, the knowledge in my head came to me because of that relationship from that franchise. And it was structured in such a way that I paid them to be a part of their family, but they also gave me something of great value. It was the education, but also the CRM online management systems the ability to to get advertising for the businesses that i had for sale for less money than i would pay if i did it myself so so i look at that relationship and i go wow i paid them and i got tremendous value and i think that there are many franchise systems out there like that but without an experienced eye examining the details of how the relationship is going to function uh, you can just as easily get caught up in a bad one.
1: Yeah, you know, it's great great advice. And and I think what happens is people, first-time business owners in particular, default to that because of this perceived safety of it. It's mm. like it's a guaranteed success and they're blinded by that, but don't look at the details like you've just spoken about. All right, so speaking then, continuing with your journey as you had that business brokerage, then a life event happens and that brings that all to a screeching halt. So if you could... Share a little bit about that at that point in your life.
0: Yeah, you know what the the year 2011 um, hands down worst year of my life. So the year started off with me learning that uh, that my marriage would be ending. Uh, my my wife at the time came to me and and you know basically laid some cards on the table that 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 bespoke that the marriage was going to be coming to an end and at the same time my business brokerage went through um, a nine-month drought of closings in the middle of that year and business brokerage is uh, a roller coaster cash flow Henry because I used to charge a small fee to client to sellers when they came in to, to list their business and I had to prepare everything but of course the the payday comes when you sell the business and you get your commission and At the end of 2011, I had six deals lined up to close that were going to bring in a quarter of a million dollars of revenue. And by the time the year ended, three of those deals had fallen apart for reasons completely outside of the control of me, the buyer or the seller. One of them fell apart because of an issue with a franchisor. Another one fell apart because a bank rescinded a funding letter that they had issued. And a third one fell apart in a regulated industry where um, a government office would not issue a license to the buyer. So my my quarter of a million dollars of revenue shrank to 110 And if you've, you ever see a photograph of me, I've got gray on the side of my head. It all comes from 2011, all of it.
1: <laughs> okay. We can laugh at it now perhaps, or I can, but I'm sure it was
0: a, yeah, a life-changing it, 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 year. I didn't get a lot of sleep that year, and I had a two- and three-year-old at home, Amazing. right? So I had... I had challenges at home because I needed to, to pay for life and I didn't have things closing at work basically from the spring until October. And um, then at the end of the year, three of my deals fell apart. And instead of having this nice bank account full of money at the end of the year, I was left with revenues coming in that basically covered in the lines of credit. And I said to myself, I just can't live this way. This, this model is not working for me. So, the worst thing in the world happened to me, Henry, I I told my wife at the time, she, she would always have issues about, about entrepreneurship. And she said, you know, what if it doesn't work? What if it fails? Blah, blah, blah. I said, look, the worst thing that could happen is I'll have to get a job Um, February 12th, 2012. I reported to work for somebody else. And it, it was interesting. It was a, it was different from what I had done before. It was a sales job again. Um, which, which is what I was looking for, I, I believe strongly in, in the Napoleon Hill law of attraction. So when I decided I was going to get out of business brokerage, I sat down, I wrote a job description of the role that I wanted. And I said, it's going to be working from home, home office, I'll have a car allowance or a company car, I'm going to, you know, cover a territory and which I defined, these are my earnings and this is kind of what I'm going to be doing. and. That was in the beginning of December, and by February 12th, I had been hired by a company doing exactly that job description. Amazing. So it, let, it let, me, let
1: me interrupt because I want to dive into a couple of things here. Um, first off, with your wife at the time, and I think this is a big challenge for everyone, is that when you don't have that synchronization, when your spouse, your mate, uh, your significant other is not on the same page with you, so it seems like you alluded to that that was always an issue that she would have preferred you have the quote unquote safe job and I'm not and we're not saying this to speak ill of her this is a common thing for a lot of mm-hmm. people Did you now looking back on that was that a a major disconnect that that made it that much harder on the relationship and then on on your ability to continue as an entrepreneur at that point in time
0: I I think it was a little bit of a challenge she um she didn 't understand a lot of the stuff that was going on in my head mm-hmm. um, I remember I remember i would I came home in August and at the same time, I owned some apartment buildings so which was was actually the saving grace of cash flow at the time again, back to the diversification uh, topic. So on the first of every month, I had a whole bunch of rent money coming in, and then I also had mortgage payments on those buildings going out but But there was always uh, a net income on the first day of the month. And I remember I came home one day it was it was August and it might have been like the 27th or 28th and I said to her I said things are very tight for me cash flow wise we can't spend any money from now until September 1st it was like 4 days okay and and she said oh okay and then I came home the next day and she said great news they were having a huge sale down at the children's clothing store I bought all this stuff at 50% off uh, I need you to give me uh, $180. And, and I looked at her and I said, I said, do you recall yesterday? I said, we we can't spend any money until September 1st because things are tight. And she said, well, yeah, but look how much I saved. See, we were talking two different languages. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, that's, and that's the takeaway I want for our listeners. It's that 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 doesn't make that person bad or good or you bad or good. It's just... The the point is that we need to make sure we have these conversations up front before we become business owners and make sure there's at least some understanding, even though it might not turn out that way, but that you at least understand that this can be a big problem if you're not on the mm-hmm. same page on these things. And a lot of it probably fell on you in communicating effectively. So it takes both, right? But it but it certainly yeah. is such a drain and it makes it so much harder when you're not in sync. And one person has a different mindset about building a business than the spouse does. And that makes it so much harder. Um, When you had to go then take that job, what were you thinking as far as this is temporary and I'll get back to being my own boss or forget that I need to just forget about being my own boss and keep to keeping, keeping a career and rebuilding my career? What were you thinking back then?
0: Well, when I started, um, i I honestly pictured myself you know like the the statue of Atlas, you know um thinking here I am, I screwed everything up, things didn't work out the way that I had intended, and now I'm going to be burden myself or labor under this burden forever and be a miserable old guy like you read about in you know, stories.
1: So it was your punishment. You were going to punish yourself. Yes.
0: This was, this was my indentured servitude that I had to suffer under now forever. And, uh, you know, thank, and thank goodness people have the ability to compartmentalize because when I was busy working and I was face to face with the customers that I had in this new role, um, that, that's where I was mentally, I was with them mentally. The the when I would to start punishing myself mentally was when I would have to, for example, spend two hours in a car, go traveling between two cities. That's when you know I had time to to start punishing myself again, right? Because you know you, you don't want to go more than a day without being cruel to your own self. And and then the funny thing is, Henry, that the phone rang, my my cell phone rang, and there was a person that I didn't know on the phone, and they said, you know. I've been, I've been thinking about selling my business and I talked with this other guy and he said that you're the person that I should talk to, Dave, I should, I should get some help from you. And I said, you know, oh, well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad that person thinks so highly of me, but I've got to tell you, I'm not a business broker anymore, so, so I can't help you. I don't do that anymore. And it was less than 10 days later, the phone rang again and it was a different person who had been referred by another different person.
1: And how far are we into your your job at this point? How long had you
0: been working? This would have been the summertime of 2012. So I'm in the job for five months and the phone's ringing. And the second time though, I didn't just say no. I said, I said wait a second, the, you know, there, there's already a pattern emerging. And so the, to, to the second person I said, well, I'm not a business broker anymore and I have a full-time career now. Uh, I can help you with this stuff, but I'm not a broker and I'd have to act as a consultant. And so um, what I would have to do is I'd have to charge you $100 an hour and I can only meet with you and talk with you on either evenings or weekends. And I just just stopped speaking. I just was quiet. And after a couple of moments, the person said, well, so then that means you can meet me Saturday at 9? And I said, yeah, I can meet you Saturday at 9. And so I met with that person, and over the course of a oh, month. But,
1: but wait a second. So when you hang up that phone, and as you're getting ready for Saturday at nine, what, what, what did that do to you? What, what are you thinking then?
0: Well, it's 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 you know it's the the ray of sunshine from heaven, you know, that somehow leaks down into uh, into the the, the the furnaces of of you know my own suffering, right? And and I'm like, well, wait a minute here, and and of course. I didn't think that this was going to be a business. I I thought, I thought here's a way for me to get a couple of extra hundred dollars for Christmas. Right. Here's, here's a little side hustle money, you know, that, uh, that's wasn't foreseen that can help bridge a gap in the, in the budget or whatever. And what started to happen was that the phone just started to ring more and more. And in early 2014, um, I was based on a conversation with some people. I got the inspiration to write my first book. And the first book gave me a reason to start keeping a blog. And so the phone was ringing for people asking for my help um, because of reputation. It was people locally, people who were connected to other people that I'd worked with. But once I started to have the blog, then people started to come to me from away from further away. And I started to get inquiries and phone calls. And then in early 2015, uh, we had a meeting and in uh, where I live there was in this region, there were two people doing the same job that I was doing, me and another fellow. And they were talking about restructuring the business. And so I'm now thinking, okay, here it is. They're going to let somebody go. And this other guy, has two kids and a wife and all he has is this job. And at that moment, Henry, I was sitting there, I was working a full-time job and in the 12 months leading up to that moment when we were told there was a restructuring, I had billed almost $50,000 in consulting revenue on the side. Wow. And I said, I've already got another job. I've already got something else I can do. So so I just I let my manager know. I said, you know what? If somebody's got a walk and there's a package or something, I'd be interested in looking at that. And then I was off on my own. So I, I built this business today where I work with people literally from all around the world. Uh, I'm in Canada, but half of my business is international. I help people in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, the U.K. And people call me up whether they're buying or selling a business or they're having problems figuring out how to get their business running smartly to grow the systematization stuff. And the business comes to me through my books. I've got, uh, three of my books are bestsellers on Amazon, invest local franchise warnings, and my latest one, how to sell my own business. And then the YouTube channel, which, which supports the blog is also a big source of traffic for me. So it's, it's interesting because about a year and a half ago when I was, When I was still working and doing some stuff on the side, that's when I started to daydream about when possibly this could become a full-time thing. And and I created a list of criteria for myself. I said, number one, there's no way I want to become involved in a contingent revenue business again. So business brokerage was a contingent revenue. If the business didn't sell, I didn't get paid, right? Right. I wanted to be in a business where I got paid for what I did. I felt I'm a professional. I have a lot of value to deliver. I have a lot of information to give. Why is the accountant able to bill for his time, whether or not a business closes, but I, you know, whether or not a business is sold, but I can't. Right. So I don't want to be in a contingent revenue model. I want to be paid for what I do for the value I deliver every day. And number three um where i live on the east coast of canada the economy is not as boisterous as it once was things aren't rocking and rolling here economically so i wanted to get into something that would remove my dependence on a local economy make me more geographically independent and so that's what i've been able to build and when i when i work with business owners today in my mentoring capacity um You know, they always want to talk about their business. And my first question to them is, let's create a sketch of what your life looks like in 10 years. How many hours do you work? How many weeks do you go on vacation? How much do you take home? What's your earnings, right? Because until we know what you want your life to look like, we don't even know what kind of business we have to build. Once we know what kind of life we need to support, then we can create a design of what the business has to become in order to support that life. Yeah. And once we have the picture of what the business looks like, we can actually create a plan to grow it, to grow to that spot. Yeah, And so it's, it's all related because like I said in the beginning, when I started talking about risk and taking money out of a business, the purpose of a business is the same purpose that the family farm had a hundred years ago when most people on this continent lived on a family farm. The family farm was there to produce lifestyle and food to support you. And a business's purpose is to support you and your family to have the lifestyle that you want.
1: So if you look back now, you're almost two years into this venture now. Is that that lifestyle, lifestyle design approach and looking at it that way, is that one of the things that you would say is markedly different than your first, first go-around in business?
0: Yeah, absolutely, because when I was younger in that junk removal business, I thought my purpose was to remove junk and get paid for it. And that business took off well, we executed it well, but it was never going to be more than a job. I was... I always say to people there's, there's, there's three kinds of, of activity you can be involved in you day to day. If you have a business that produces enough money for you to pay yourself a fair market wage for what you do every day and then there's also a profit at the end of the year from the business, then you own a business if your business only produces enough money for you to pay yourself a fair market wage for the work that you do and you're no better off financially than working for somebody else you don't own a business you own a job Mm -hmm. and if the business can't produce enough money for you to pay yourself the fair market wage for what you do every day then you don't even own a job what you own is a hobby and and here's the the devastating part is that if you spend evenings and weekends and money on your model train set you're not fooling yourself. You know that you're enjoying a hobby. And there's too many people out there working 80 hours a week, believing that they're building a business when in fact they're enjoying a hobby.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's uh, dive in a little deeper now on the whole topic of buying a business or starting a business. And I'm going to rapid fire some of these questions so we can get through some of this and and then dive into the ones we think need it. But we okay. talked about franchising. My my next question to you that I'd like a, a quick answer to is buying an existing business versus building your own. What's your quick thought on that?
0: It's faster, che- cheaper, and easier to buy a business than to build one. When you, when you buy a business, you already have your two success factors. I, I believe there's two things you need to be successful in business, and that's a A system and methodology to deliver a product and service that people want and people who are there to buy it. You buy a business, you've got them both. You start a business, you have to figure out the system and methodology while trying to attract the customers. Agreed.
1: Financing. Obviously, that's, as we've already chatted about, is, at least with the clients I work with, the number one issue. You have that group of people, like you explained that do have some capital, whether it's resources they can tap into like home equity or savings or a 401k or or they've gotten some kind of a severance. But by and large, this is the biggest issue. So, and, and for a lot of first time business owners, let's stay there in that category. First time business owners, financing is tough, right? Traditional lending is tough to to acquire, especially if there's not a real estate component, at least in my experience here in this part of the States. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your experience and what options people should look at, creative options for financing. And you've spoken about that in quite a few of your videos on your website. So chat to us about that if you would.
0: Sure. the A couple of big things off the top of my head. Number one, the knee-jerk reaction of most people when they look at buying a business is that they think that they need to do it the way that the seller has done it. And so you mentioned real estate. You know, the very first thing that I try to do when I'm advising people on buying a business is strip that real estate away. Why do you want to come up with the down payment on an asset that might grow at 2% or 3% a year? There is a reason why Walmart doesn't own its own buildings. The down payment on those buildings is the same amount of money that fills the shelves. Except money invested in inventory turns over every 30 days and yields a 30% margin that same money invested in real estate grows at two or 3% a year.
1: All right, so let me see if I'm following you with this example. Let's say it's a business I'm looking to buy and the the owner owns the piece of land, owns the building and of course the business and I'm looking to Mm -hmm. buy that business. My approach should be what?
0: Buy the business and become a tenant. Tell them you wanna buy the business but don't buy the building, become a tenant because once you get two years under your belt as an operator of that business and you're profitable, You can take those financial statements into your bank and say, hey, look, I know how to run this business. There's now no risk of me not knowing how to run this business. I've demonstrated that I can run this business profitably. Would you now help me with a mortgage to buy the building off the guy? So obviously, I would have
1: negotiated that option as part of the deal originally. But when I went to buy, in essence, then the goodwill of the business and rent Mm -hmm. from that person, he becomes then the landlord. Is it at that point then it's going to be harder for me to get traditional financing, but I think your point is I may not need that because now my outlay upfront investment is significantly less. Am I following you there?
0: That's right. The, the, in the big world of big business, all they do is sit around figuring out how they can make more money with less investment. Right. And if you, if you apply that thinking to small business, you realize, Hey, do I really need to own three trucks? Or can I hire a delivery company? Do I need to own the building or can I lease? Do I need to own, you know, three generators for this contracting company? Or do I need one and occasionally rent one or two more?
1: You know, a lot of this, David, is about leverage. And and Mm -hmm. this is where I think a lot of your thoughts are really insightful. And, And it's, again, it goes back to the conversation I had. We tend to bring to business... The thoughts that we apply, or the philosophies we apply to our personal investments, right? Where debt is bad and not owning everything is bad, versus we're in business. That's that's not the case at all. In fact, as entrepreneurs, that's what we do: is we leverage other people's assets, right?
0: Well, let me give you an example. If let's say you're in a in a in a road building business, okay, so you have a lot of heavy equipment. And you, you bid on jobs from the state government, let's say, to, to fix roads or build roads. And let's say twice a year you need a, a granite crusher on site. And then all of a sudden one of your competitors goes under and you can buy this quarter million dollar piece of equipment for $100,000. A lot of people in that industry, if they've got the money, will do it. Because they think, now I don't have to rent that machine. I'll save money. But if businesses in that industry are valued, let's say, at a five-time multiple, that implies a 20% rate of return on capital invested in that industry, which means unless you're saving $20,000 a year by owning that piece of equipment, putting your money into it is actually creating what I call dead capital. You've got money tied up in a business for which you're not earning an adequate rate of return. Yeah. You, you You are... If you were buying shares on the stock market and you bought $100 worth of telephone company stock and the next day the, the value went down to $80, you would immediately know that you lost $20. Bucks. Yeah. You, would, you would know that. The problem is, though, that people don't get their businesses valued every day. They don't see the, the the consequence of these types of decisions. And so, yeah, I mean, unless there's a strategically critical need to control a certain piece of equipment or outcome, then then I'm always one for figuring out how can I use it and take advantage of somebody else's capital. That's right,
1: and, and I think we lie to ourselves just like we do when we buy personal stuff, right? Our cars or other things, we, we want it to have more value than it does. So we, we
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of lie to ourselves about that. We've talked about quite a few mistakes. What are some of the other common mistakes you see that people make when they buy a business, especially first-time business owners?
0: Well, I I think that one of the biggest things I see is that people um, mistakenly confuse their time with their money. So when I'm helping people to buy a business, uh, what we'll do is a a normalization of the financial statements to to get a, a cash flow that we call SDE, which is seller's discretionary earnings. That's the total cash available to an owner operator of a business. And then I'll say to my buyer, there's three things we need to get out of this SDE cash flow. Number one, you need to take home a fair market wage for the work that you're going to do. Number two, you have to service the debt that you're going to take on to buy the business. And number three, you need to get a sufficient rate of return on your own capital that you're putting in. People very often, Henry, miss entirely the third one. And part of the first one, it's easy to know that you have to have cash flow to pay the bank because they're going to come looking for the money, right? But I've seen so many people get into a business where they they end up working crazy hours because and they don't get paid what they should they'd be far better off if they had a job in the same field doing the same work for somebody else.
1: And again, David, I think some of this is again tied to this point of this philosophy as well, I'm I'm appreciating this asset in this business mm-hmm. and it's the absolutely wrong way to look at it. That's not where the value is. The value is in what you can get out of it as you've already articulated.
0: Yeah, and, and from the opposite point of view, from the seller side, <clears throat> one of the biggest mistakes that sellers make when they go to sell a business is they they don't get a proper they don't get proper advice on what the business is actually worth. They again they bring this homeowner mentality into it. They they think that it's worth whatever someone will pay. And in the market at any given time, there are two types of buyers. There are the reasonable educated buyers, who are the people with money, who are preparing themselves, who are educating themselves, they have good credit, they have equity available. And if they know that they're out looking, for example, for a machine shop, then they know in a broad range what a machine shop is likely worth as a percentage of sales and as a multiple of earnings. If you put your machine shop up for sale and you ask 50 or 70% more than what it's really worth, those reasonable buyers are going to take one look at you and realize, yeah, that guy's you know, crazy. I can't deal with that guy. He, he's completely unrealistic in his expectations but who you won't scare away are your low ball tire kickers who run around making offers to everyone and they'll waste the seller's time, sometimes a year of their time. And the reasonable guys are nowhere to be found where if you had put the right price on it from the beginning, the reasonable people would step right up and start talking to you right away.
1: Yeah. And on both of these, uh, topics of buying or selling but let's stay with buying and the whole concept of analyzing the cash flow if if I, if you're listening and that immediately is like oh my gosh that's beyond my skill set you have to get help on this you mm-hmm. have to get help on doing this because it is the critical component that again as you alluded to is a big mistake people make and and it's typical again to continue with the analogy of in our personal life you fall in love just like when you fall in love with the house that you want to buy but to be careful not to fall in love with the idea of the business for whatever combination of reasons and not deeply and carefully analyze the numbers.
0: Yeah, in in my workshops and seminars I call it buyer fever. Um it's it's when you when you get into the headspace of imagining yourself in the business in the future where all you think about is what you're going to do once you own it, once you've developed that buyer fever. Um, you know the other side can negotiate the price higher, and you 're going to f- dream up ways to justify how it 's okay to pay that extra money absolutely or or agree to terms that aren 't necessarily good for you. Um, there is an antidote to that it 's called having a written batna, which is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement and when i 'm working with buyers, I always insist that they sit down and write out their batna before they enter a negotiation. Because that best alternative to a negotiated agreement is going to ground you. And you literally, when you have a deal in front of you, you have to say, which is the better deal for me? This deal that's in front of me or my best alternative?
1: And a best alternative could be to do nothing?
0: A best alternative can be to do nothing. A best alternative can be to carry on in a job you don't like for another three months waiting for the next opportunity the best alternative could be to pick up and move it, you know, it's completely subjective to an individual, you know, and, and here's why some people get into businesses and pay too much and get into a bad deal because their best alternative might be really bad.
1: All right. Right? So we're going to have to convince you to come back for a part two to dive into selling because we've spent so much time on this great topic and so much good stuff here. So I'm going to start to wrap up this episode and take a personal turn and we've chatted about some of these things but looking back now again if you could summarize what you think have been some of the keys to your success in life and in business
0: i think one of the key successes the things to my success is is coming to the realization that what i do and deliver for people is valuable and that i have a place in this world helping people in this way Um, you know, in the beginning, it was hard for me, um, being a consultant instead of a broker, because when you're a broker, it's easy to say, I sold the business, I'm entitled to this commission. Mm -hmm. When you're a consultant, you're saying, look, all I've done is I've looked at things with you and talked with you and shared some ideas. But I guess the, 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 the confidence and realization really started to form when I realized that I was charging people a few hundred to a couple thousand dollars and helping people avoid mistakes that would have been worth tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, you can't buy insurance like that anywhere. You can't find an investment like that anywhere.
1: All right. So that confidence that developed over time that you do have value to deliver and it. it yeah. is, And it does have value for your clients. So, so what else stands out as you look back at your life?
0: Um, you know, the, the other thing that stands out is that you can't have regrets because the lifestyle and success that I enjoy today is entirely built upon what at one point I considered a total failure, which was my career in business as a business broker.
1: Mm, very well said. What do you love to do the most today?
0: Um, There's two things at the top of the list. Number one is spending time with my kids. They're seven and uh, almost nine now. And uh, doing things like camping and being outdoors. I I live in a beautiful part of the world and people travel from all over to visit here. And when the weather is nice, I try to take advantage of what I've got right here on my doorstep.
1: And of course, being your own boss gives you that flexibility.
0: Well, and and you know what? That's, That's the thing is so many people are running their own businesses and they're running themselves ragged. They're running themselves harder than any boss would ever dream of doing. And when I when I have my I run my life by a calendar, and the first thing I do is I block out my family commitments, the time when I'm with the children and I share custody now with my ex-wife. So I block out the time when I'm with the children so that when I'm with them, I'm just with them. I'm not trying to do other things at the same time. And then the next thing I block out in my calendar, Henry, is uh, my, my workout routine. The time that I spend exercising and the time that I spend going for a walk in the forest. Because that's what allows me to deliver value to my clients. Having the time to decompress and clear my thoughts and clear my head is what creates room for the great ideas that other people are paying me for. Yeah,
1: love that. All right. We'll wrap it up with a few more questions. Obviously, uh, besides your book, again, which is How to Sell Your Own Business. Is there- it's
0: How to Sell My Own Business. Oh,
1: My Own Business. How to Sell yeah. My Own Business. Got it. Thanks for the clarification there. No problem. Um, and of course, we've mentioned Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth, another one of my favorite books. Is there anything else that comes to mind book-wise that you would recommend to our listeners?
0: Yeah, one, one of the, the best reads I've had in a while was, was one I picked up last year. It's called You're a Badass by Jen Sincero. <laughs> and uh, what's great about the book is you can tell that Jen's probably invested a lot of her life reading hundreds of personal development books. And what she's put together is a distillation of some of the five or six things that you can implement right away to get the biggest bang with the least amount of effort in getting yourself on the track to self improvement.
1: Fantastic. Great great uh, recommendation. We'll have links to that, the other books, your book, all of that you can find at the show notes page for this episode at the David last uh, parting piece of advice or thought for our listeners.
0: Well, I guess the the, the you know, we touched on this a little bit uh, a little bit before. Um, is not to be, I guess what I tell people a lot is be prepared to act, but don't feel obligated. So when people are wanting to buy a business, for instance, I'll tell them, you know, go to the bank, tell them you want to build a swimming pool, get them to approve a, you know, line of credit on your house, get all your ducks, in, even though even well, you don't want to build a pool, you want to buy a business, don't ever tell them that you want to buy a business get your your lines of credit and your financing and, and your assets in a condition where if the right opportunity arrives, you're ready to act without having to go around and talk to all those people. But then don't feel obligated. Wait for the deal that makes sense for you. Because if you get into a bad deal, there's only one of two outcomes. You're either gonna lose money or time. So you're either gonna realize you made a mistake and getting out of it is gonna cost you money, or you're going to get into something, and the only way to get out of it without losing money is to invest 10 years of your life working 60 hours a week. Right.
1: Be prepared to act, but don't feel obligated. Love that. Yeah. Where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and your business?
0: Uh the best place to go is the blog site, David C um, or investlocalbook.com. Both take you to the same place. It's my blog. And every week I put up a new blog post. There's also an email list that people can subscribe to. Every Friday I send out an email with a new video. And, um, and uh, you know, people on the email list get that three or four days before the general public.
1: Fantastic. And we'll have links to those sites on the show notes page as well at thehowabusiness.com. David, this has been a fascinating hour. Uh, we could go on for another few hours and hopefully we can convince you to come back so we can do so. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. And I would love to come back, Henry.
1: Fantastic. Folks, this is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business.
0: Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by levantebusinessgroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.